Welcome to Madame Podcast. Today's special guest is Dr. Susan Shaw, who is Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Oregon State University. Today, she joins to talk about her new co-written book, Surviving God, and about sexual abuse, images of a God, intersectionality, joy, and so much more. Please stay tuned. With deep roots in the Christian tradition and open to engaging dialogue, William B. Ehrman's publishing company is committed to the life of the religious academy, to the church, and to the role of religion and culture. With a history spanning over 100 years, Erdman publishes the finest literature in theology, biblical studies, and religious history and popular titles in spirituality, ministry, and cultural criticism. In addition to David Gushy, authors publishing with Erdman's include Padraig Otama, Amy Peeler, Matthew Bates, David Hummel, Janet Kellogg-Ray, and more. Popular themes throughout the 2024 book season include titles on evangelicalism and politics, faith deconstruction, and a supply of captivating literary nonfiction selections. Visit the all-new www.erdmans.com to order your books today. While you're there on the website, remember to sign up for our monthly newsletter called The Logo to stay in the know regarding upcoming releases, author events, and all things Erdman's. Broadleaf Books is excited to announce the publication of Grace G. Sun Kim and Susan M. Shaw's new book, Surviving God, A New Vision of God Through the Eyes of Sexual Abuse Survivors. This one-of-a-kind book centers the voice of sexual abuse survivors while rethinking key Christian beliefs. Readers will discover new ways of thinking about God that are surprising, challenging, inspiring, and empowering, leading to deep healing for individuals and a transformed church that no longer contributes to the devastation of sexual abuse. Please use discount code SURVIVINGGOD30 till April 30th to get 30% off the price list from Broadleaf website. For this book and to discover more new and exciting titles focusing on spirituality and religion, visit www.broadleafbooks.com. Com. Please attend Penn Autumn's 38th conference, which will be held virtually March 7th to 9th. This year's theme is Where Streams Join, Resignifying Complexity, Mutuality, and Healing. The conference will begin with a plenary session, Intergenerational Trauma, on March 7th, 8 to 9.30 Eastern Time, which is free and open to the public. Please visit www.panaawtm.org for more information on this conference and other events or to donate. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madame Podcast. Today's special guest is Dr. Susan Shaw, who's a professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Oregon State University. She is the author of many books, such as Reflective Faith, Women's Voices, 
feminist visions, and intersectional theology. Today, she joins us to share Surviving God, a new vision of God through the eyes of sexual abuse survivors. Lisa Sharon Harper writes about the book. It is a monumental gift to the church and to survivors alike. With profound insight and theological precision, Kim and Shaw re-examine the scriptures from the point of view of the God who survives, survivors in the scriptures, and Jesus, the survivor of sexual violence. Surviving God is both indictment and healing balm for the church in an age of reckoning. So Susan, thank you so much for coming back on Madame Podcast. Yeah, it's great to be back and to talk about another book that we have coming out shortly. I know. Can you believe that we have uh, intersectional theology and um, surviving God? So you have, do you have both of them with you? Well, I have surviving God. If you will give me a minute, I can grab intersectional theology. Okay. Okay. So you have intersectional theology. I do. I have a copy right here. So we have both of our books and I'm so excited. I love writing with you. So I'm so glad these are out in the world. I know me too. You know what? It's hard to find someone who you can write with. You don't have to agree with everything. You know, I think that's the beauty of it because if you agreed with everything, then there's no need to kind of write together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's much more interesting to bring two perspectives and, and especially, you know, when, when there are uh, places where we have different ideas. I thought that was kind of fun. And it's a good model for people to see that you could be really good friends and still not believe exactly the same things. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I can't remember if I told you when I was doing my PhD program, uh, my advisor, he has, he's married to a minister, a United Church uh, of Canada minister. And they kind of co-wrote a book more for the church. And I said, you know, this was, um, I'm just a PhD student. I said, oh my goodness, that's so nice. I said, oh my gosh. I was like glowing about it. And he said to me, uh, we're just lucky to be still married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if you choose the wrong writing partner, <laughs> yeah, that could be that way. But I, I know people who argue about punctuation marks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm glad we're kind of on the same page on all of that. So yeah, so, nice. <laughs> yeah, so I know people and they they take forever because they're arguing about punctuation marks and yeah. certain things. So anyway, it's a joy to write intersectional theology. And it was a joy to write with you, um, Surviving God. Yeah, and I think for Surviving God, because it's so personal to both of us, it was nice to have a friend on the journey. Yes. Uh -huh. I think that would have been really hard to write alone and of course it would have been a very different book without both voices in it yeah it was a journey and I think um you know once the book is out and we uh talk about it and present it it'll, I think it's going to be a continued journey for me at least yeah I think so I had a friend yesterday ask me how I felt about you know my story being out there and people that I know reading it and I was like oh yeah I do think about that a little bit and it makes me a little nervous <laughs> yeah me too so I'm glad that we're both we're both nervous about it yeah yeah we can share that part of the journey too <laughs> yeah 
So, you know, well, and you and I have so many other similarities. So I'm just glad that we can share this journey together. It's so hard to find someone who we could uh, laugh about and, and, you know, write and be so personal. So thank you so much for doing this and for coming back on Madang to share it. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't have missed the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And, you know, the book is actually very beautiful. I find it so beautiful. The cover, I know you had some hesitations. I don't know if you wanted to share your hesitations or it's okay now. Yeah, it's okay now. I've, I've okay. had people tell me how beautiful it is. And I think it is beautiful. I think it is beautiful. I was just, didn't want it to be, um, because the book is so dark, and this is just me too, probably. I, I'm, I think I'm darker than you on a lot of things. But but I find it to be quite beautiful, and I think I think it will uh, attract attention, and people will stop and pick it up. Yeah, me too. And I think um, you know we did it with Broadleaf, and it's beautifully done with these. Um, you know, the, the different paragraphs where we have the stories. Mm -hmm. So I think it's so beautifully done. And I just like the feel of this book. Some books don't feel so good, but this mm -hmm. one feels really good. So it does. congratulations yeah. to us. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, questions I have for you. And, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to cover them all. But let's um, talk now a little bit about the book. Um, and I hope people will order it, um, Surviving God, uh, with Broadleaf um, books. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the book centers on an idea from feminist theories. And we do, you know, our first book was Intersectional Theology. So we bring in intersectionality. I don't know if you wanna um, share with, you know, I think a lot of people now in the public, uh, gen, you know, general audience have heard of intersectionality, but we brought it into theology. So, and we used, um, you know, our book, our previous book into this one. So can you explain to our listeners today? Yes, yeah, so I think most people sort of in the general public have the idea of intersectionality as only being about identity, you know, and in that sense, we are all intersectional beings, and that's our gender, our race, our social class, sexuality, religion, age, ability, you know, nation of origin, all those sorts of things. But all of those appear within a context of social structural power. And so intersectionality is really about understanding the difference those differences make. And so asking those questions of, you know, what does it matter that things are gendered this way or racialized this way? And so what we then did was to try to take those um, questions of intersectionality about identity and institutions and power and say, what does theology look like when we do that? And of course, that kind of theology is contextual. And we brought that then forward to this book. And so this is a very contextual theology because we start in our own stories and we bring in the stories of other survivors with whom we talked. And then we ask those questions of how are our stories situated within this matrix of power? And so that it's not about just individual people who harmed other individual people, but rather people who by virtue of gender, race, social class, whatever, were able to do these things within a web of power that allowed them to do it and often protected them from the consequences of their behavior. Um, but not us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And then, um, you know, we named it Surviving God. And I, I can't remember how we came up with the name 
Do you remember? It might have been your suggestion. Yeah, because we had started off talking about survivor theology, but that sounded so academic and that we wanted this to be a, a general audience book. And I don't know, as we were thinking through, you know, how do we see God from the perspective of survivors? And, and you know, we start the book talking about how we had to survive the God of our childhoods. And then we talked about the God who survives, you know, the bad theology of our childhood. And I think somewhere in there it clicked. It's like God, you know, that both senses of the word is are, are true, that we have to survive God and that God has to survive us. <laughs> and so uh, I think that's how we came up with it then. We, we sort of hit on that as a way to capture all those nuances and complexities of what it means to survive. Yeah. So you mentioned we have to survive the God of our childhood. I don't know if you want to expand a little bit about that You're from yeah. your own personal. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the God of my childhood, which I think was was quite similar to yours, uh, yeah. was terrifying uh, because <laughs> the, you know, this was this God that, that supposedly loved us and yet could zap us at any given moment if we misbehaved. I mean, I remember you know, the story of Lot's wife. Uh, you know, all she did was turn around and look back and he's a pillar of salt or, you know, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead, you know, and, and this, this God was, was also one that controlled everything. And, and at least in my church, the way they talked about it was uh, God's perfect will and God's permissible will. And the perfect will of God was everything happened according to what God wants. But the permissible will of God said that God also gives us freedom. And so people can choose to do wrong, but God permits it. Well, you know, when you're a child who's abused, I mean, there's not a lot of distinction between God willed it and God allowed it. I mean, neither yeah. one of the gods is one I want much to do with. And so that became, you know, the crisis of faith for me. And we talk about that some in the book about the images and the things that allowed us not to just give up on God at that point. Um, yeah. But but that was the God of my childhood, was the the, the God who scared me. And, and of course, you know, it, it, how much does that reflect abuse, right? This person who's supposed to love you unconditionally, but also can harm you and kill you at will. And so, you know, it, it, it's this perfect setup for abuse. Yeah. And it's so difficult for those who have been abused to accept that because it really puts blame on yourself or the the one that's suffering. So, you know, we wrote about, you know, God doesn't cause or will or want abuse. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to say a little bit about that, because I think in some, you know, churches and faith communities, we do preach that God willed it, you yeah. know, young girls and young boys. I don't, and I hear that a lot. So, did you want to say anything about that? Oh, I have a lot to say about it. <laughs> I'll try to keep it short. Keep going, man. <laughs> well, you know, the question we ask in the book is, is what kind of God? I mean, I, I cannot understand how people can posit a God like this. I mean, this idea of a God that would, would allow these things or cause them uh, is, is just incomprehensible to me. Um, and I sort of get where if if you haven't been reflective about it and that's all you've ever been told, it's there. And then the church as an institution reinforces this. And we see this, by the way, churches muck up their responses to abuse. You know, they're concerned with preserving the institution. 
And so they don't, they don't handle it well at all. And so you're sort of left with this notion of a God who's responsible for this. And again, what kind of God is that? And for me, the, the, that sort of crisis question um, fortunately led me to process theology. It was, it was nice timing that I discovered process because process gave me a way to let God off the hook. Because in process, process says that God can only do what God can do <laughs> and God can't do what God can't do. And within process, God is not a controlling and coercive power, but rather God is persuasive love. And so God doesn't make things happen, but rather God is at work in the universe calling all things to be uh, what God wants them to be, to fulfill their divine intent. And that let me realize that God did not cause my suffering, but in fact, God experienced my suffering with me and, and called within that situation for things to be different. But again, because God doesn't control things, my abuser didn't necessarily have to listen to God. Um, and yet I think also God was at work in me calling me to survive. And, you know, I don't think there is any lesson in any of that that was so valuable. I needed to go through that. I don't buy the sort of, oh, but God's trying to teach you something. Well, if that's the best way God can teach, God's not a good teacher. <laughs> you know, I have never had to abuse any of my students to teach them something. And that's so I... <laughs> you know, um, I, I think things just happen and that God is there experiencing those things and that God is there calling us to do love and justice. Yeah. And, and that, that I hope that that is our response. Um, yeah. uh, it, it, you know, and, and, and I think that, that God's also calling to perpetrators. Um, but again, I don't think they're listening. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. So the book, you know, we, you know, I, we ended up doing a lot about who God is than I had first imagined, but I think it turned out really well because we need really needed to explore that as you were discussing right now about, you know, survivors and how we, you know, how the church treats us and, and accepts us and what the church continues to perpetuate. Those are all important. And I think it really needs to, we need to understand who God is to understand why this is happening and how to stop this. So in the book, it says, often we don't even think of our images of God as images. We think of them as concrete realities. We turn them into um, idols. For example, when we think of God as a master, we think God really is a white overlord who has a right to control and discipline and use violence. Mm -hmm. I was younger. I never thought that way um, because I think you and I kind of grew up in this uh, white fundamentalist evangelical who preaches this type of a God. Mm -hmm. And only in my adulthood, you know, suffering abuse and trying to make sense of it, it you know, you and I went through this journey in the book. So did you want to say or expand on this? Um, you know, we think of them as concrete realities. I actually think we do. So tell us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a good example of that is this notion of God, um, the Father. 
Uh, to, to, to the point that you've seen in a number of religious traditions when feminists have challenged that the church has responded really badly because they don't think of God uh, as father. They think God is father. You know, they think that there is something. Uh, what's another word for ontologically? There's something inherent in God's being yeah. that is male and is father. And that's so problematic because you know, if if God's a father, fathers abuse. I mean, we think that of all of our male images. I mean, we say that in the book that all these male images in real life are rapists to somebody. You know, where's father, master? Goodness gracious, let's think about the history of that word. You know, Lord comes out of the feudal system. I mean, why are we embracing something that's out of uh, feudalism? You know, with with those incredible social class distinctions and the, the ways that people were used and abused within that system. And I love the phrase that comes from um, Alfred North Whitehead, who was the philosopher that, that theologians used to develop process theology. And Whitehead talks about something he calls the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. And that's one of just my favorite phrases in the world. And, and this is what he says. He says that, that we take things that in a moment can be perfectly good images that help us understand something, but then we begin to think of them as concrete realities. And so, for example, let's say we take my desk here. Now, theoretically, we could cut my desk in half an infinite number of times. In reality, we can't do that because at some point you start cutting molecules and atoms in half. So this, this notion that my desk is a solid entity that can be divided infinite numbers of times is, is simply not true. But that concept is very useful for us to think about how things can always be divided. And so for me, that's an example of the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. I think the same thing is true of, of these images of God as father, Lord, master, um, that, that for some people, they may have at some point served as good images, but they are not the reality of God because no image can can capture that reality. And we only have images. We only have analogies and metaphors to talk about God. And so we have to be really careful not to turn them into idols. And I think that's what, what a lot of us have done when we begin to think that God is a father, God is a master, God is a Lord. So I, I think we, we need to be cautious about how we use our images. Yeah. And I'm not advocating that we simply do the flip-flop and say God is a mother. I think we talk, in the book, we even talk about mothering so we talk about it as a verb as opposed to, you know, the, this noun. Yeah, I think that's helpful, especially for those who are really struggling with, um, you know, what it means to um, be a Christian and, you know, the different languages that we have about God. What are we going to do about it? So thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's so crucial. Um, to our theological journey and those of people of faith. So our book also, you know, we, as people who are abused, you know, in the church, the church is really quick to talk about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to say a little bit about what forgiveness is and how does it play out uh, when someone is abused? Yeah, and, and I'll talk to so from my tradition Forgiveness is actually pretty darn easy. All you have to say is, oh, God, I sin, please forgive me. And you intend not to do it again. And that's it. Poof, you're forgiven. 
And there is no expectation to make things right with anybody you may have wronged along the way. Uh, and so sin is very much treated as, um, and, and, and you say this in the book, you had this wonderful idea about how it's treated as the vertical relationship, and that's all that matters, is our relationship with God. And it ignores the horizontal relationships that we have with other people. And we know, I mean, the psychology of abuse is that, you know, survivors, when they're pushed into that, are are done even greater damage because forgiveness if it comes has to come in its own time and churches have often used this to guilt survivors into forgiving so that these these men can just simply go on doing what they were doing i mean i think of the the story we tell in the book about you know andy savage who was outed for abusing and when he said he was sorry to his church they stood up and applauded and i'm like are you paying for her therapy? I mean, what are you doing to make it right? And especially, I think evangelical Protestants do not have a theology of 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 penance and atonement. You know, it's it's what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. You know, it's simple, it's easy, it's it's magical thinking. And for survivors, it can be devastating. Because in fact, if you don't forgive in the ways the church is telling you to, you may be the one who's sinning, not your abuser, because they've asked for forgiveness from God, but you haven't forgiven, so you're the sinner. And all those layers of abuse just keep piling up within the church. So how are we to overcome that, this easy forgiveness that you and I kind of grew up with? So how do we you know, help those people who are, you know, you talked about the layers of abuse that continue to perpetuate and just pile on upon the abused. Yeah. What can we do or what can we talk about uh, rather than forgiveness or do we continue to talk about forgiveness? Well, I, first of all, I think the churches have got to figure this out because like the Southern Baptist Convention, these are my people, are just making a mess of their abuse scandal because they cannot come to terms with what restoration and reconciliation might look like. Uh, so instead, they just keep trying to find ways not to be responsible. You know, and, and here's one of the first things we teach children is, you know, you have to be accountable for your actions. And yet we see entire denominations, the Southern Baptists, the Catholics, who are trying to avoid any accountability for the ways that they enabled and, and fostered abuse. And so I think we we have got to keep calling the church to do better. I think we have to, um, you know, realize that, that that surviving brings a host of psychological issues that need to be dealt with in counseling, not biblical counseling. You can't just quote Bible verses at survivors and think that's going to help them because we, we need to address all those long-term effects that abuse has. And I've always thought that the abuser ought to have to pay for any counseling. That's that's a concrete action yeah. that can be done to start some kind of restoration for what happened, but nonetheless. And within that, you know, you, you recognize sometimes forgiveness might be a part of that, but forgiveness doesn't mean, oh, I forgive you, so everything's great. Let's be buddies again. You know, forgiveness means I no longer am going to bear ill will and bad wishes towards you. And I forgive not for their sake, but for my own, because it it frees me. It lets me be free of carrying that burden of rage and guilt. 
you know, and it, and it's something, it's not like it happens once and it's done either. You know, it's, it's a process. And that's just one of the things for me that's so frustrating is in abuse is that through no fault of our own, something happens to us that we have to deal with the rest of our lives over and over and over again, you know, and just when you think you've dealt with all of it, here comes another layer or just, you think you've dealt with it all and you decide to write a book about it. <laughs> and, you know, and the, Go ahead. Go ahead. And I was gonna say the path for each survivor is gonna be different. I mean, there's not a, a one solution fits all for for this. And the church has to learn to deal with all of this if it really cares anything about addressing the the legacies of abuse and the effects of abuse. I'm not convinced the church does yet. I haven't seen much of that. Um, I still see churches wanting to sweep it under the rug. Um because that's easier. Yeah. Um you know, and you see stuff like right now, oh my gosh, I don't know if you saw the Southern Baptist Convention. So one of the two architects of the fundamentalist takeover in the 80s has finally been, been outed for being an abuser who was raping young men and young boys back when he was setting up the, the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, because he didn't think we were, were you know, biblical enough. And the hypocrisy that, so now the, the, the nomination... And of course, we found out that a lot of people knew this. Conservatives, a lot of them knew this, and they still didn't do anything about it. And now, of course, they're calling him evil and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, you know, this is 40 years too late. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't address it at the time. People knew it. You didn't do anything about it. These people were harmed. A whole denomination was harmed. How do you even begin to make restoration? Well, they don't want to. They just want it to be, okay, we denounced him, so let's move on. And so I I just don't see churches, denominations getting it or caring to get it. And that's just one example of so many. Every denomination we're, we're dealing with this. And it may not just be a church, but like a parachurch organization or some faith organization or some prominent um, professor who has done this. So, and then we think, oh, that was so long ago. We don't need to deal with it, you know, or maybe he has already passed. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're, because he's written many books that just let it be. So that happens way too often. And, you know, for those survivors, it's an ongoing pain. Yeah. It is uh, a huge thing to kind of carry with them throughout their life. And so we, you know, when we were, thinking about what book to write because of the me too movement that that was so big we decided to do this one because you know a book idea doesn't just come out of thin air we're thinking about it we're struggling and we thought this is an important book uh an important idea to i mean uh an important um event or ongoing things that are happening in the church and we want to deal with it so yeah, thank you so much for sharing that example within your own denomination, but it's, you know, across the board. Yeah. It's happening. Yeah. 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 So earlier, you know, you did talk about God and, you know, us surviving God. And I like the illustration that you gave about the male God, the Father God, Lord. So in the book, um, we talk about this uh kaleidoscopic um imagery so can you share about that yeah you know it's funny i think from intersectional theology that seems to be the thing that most people are so struck by i've had so many people go i love this 
So that makes my, my, my heart happy that we came up with something that's helpful to people. Uh, but, but what we've meant by that is that we can't hold on to one image as if it is the concrete reality, but rather we have to be constantly shifting our images like a kaleidoscope so that they're always changing so that we know that they're always tentative, they're contextual, uh, that they apply to us in our social location in a given moment, but they don't apply to everybody. Uh, that if we turn it a certain way and we hear the images of other people, which we do in the book by bringing in, you know, other survivors and letting them talk, that we get these shifting ideas and they may be at odds with one another. And that's okay too. We can hold these competing ideas in mind because each of them teaches us some piece that we need to know. And I think that's beautiful because I think that God is more complex than any of us or all of us can <laughs> explain. And so when we have these shifting ideas and images and metaphors, then th there, there's space for that ambiguity and there's space for that complexity. And so we let God be more than anyone or even all of our images combined. Yeah. And then you were kind of touching on both and uh, thinking. So both flash and thinking. So tell us what that means. Because I think many yeah. people in the church, we don't think this way or we're trained not to think this way. Absolutely. I think this is one of the great contributions of intersectionality. And I got this from Vivian May, who's written a really great book about um, intersectionality. And the, the idea of both and is that we um, don't have to make a decision between one idea and another necessarily, but we can hold that, that things are both and. The perfect example at this moment anyway, is I can both decry the actions of Hamas in Israel, and I can decry the treatment of Palestinians by the Israeli government and military. It's both and I don't have to say one side's right, one side's God's side. You know, what I, what I want to say is everybody just stop killing everybody else. This yeah. is not a hard concept. Don't kill each other. Um, and so both and thinking lets us do that complex thinking where we hold all of these competing ideas in mind at the same time. Now, is this um, so arbitrary that it means every idea is equal? Absolutely not. Because in intersectional thinking, how we decide which ideas are of more value has to do with justice. And so the question we ask about these ideas is, what in them leads me toward justice? And if they lead me toward injustice, then I do reject them. Sometimes competing ideas can lead me to justice. I mean, thinking about Israel and Palestine and both and, and it leads to justice in both directions. Uh, but Christian nationalism, not so much. <laughs> that, those are ideas that should be rejected outright because they lead us away from justice. Yeah. Well, since you got to Christian nationalism, did you want to just tell us what you mean by that? Because that's all relative too. It's all intersecting yeah, ideas. Yeah. And again, this is something that a lot of my people, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in United Church of Christ now because I couldn't stay with Southern Baptist, but nonetheless, you know, that's, that's how I grew up, where I went to seminary. But a lot of us, when Baptists came into being, 
we were the ones who brought the separation of church and state to this country, the idea of religious liberty, the First Amendment's uh, protection of, of religious liberty were Baptist contributions. So I'm shocked that some of these people have now become Christian nationalists. And that's the idea that we should have a Christian government that should be run by, you know, uh, Christian people following Christian ideals. Now, of course, it ignores the fact that Christians don't agree on this stuff. I mean, you and I are Christian and we do not want what these folks want at all. And so it also has this effect of saying there are only certain Christians who are real Christians and you and I would not be real Christians in this, you know, and it wouldn't help that you're a woman of color and I'm a lesbian. I mean, we're really not <laughs> good Christians. And we really should talk about is white Christian nationalism, right? Because it, it really is about preserving white supremacy as much as male supremacy and Christian dominance. Yeah. So I think that's why I, you know, I wanted to ask you because it does all intersect and we know that, uh, you know, white supremacy, this white privilege, and it's usually tied in with men. Uh, they feel it's okay to abuse those um, younger or more feeble or women or, you know, effeminate men or just younger boys. They feel it's okay because, you know, that's how the whole thing is set up, that they can just do what they wish. And, um, you know, the whole notion of God being man and father kind of reinforces it's okay to do this way. Yeah. Absolutely. And I will acknowledge, I mean, yes, of course, women abuse. But if we look at the percentages, <laughs> you know, uh, and so that doesn't negate that this is a gendered phenomenon that is predominantly done by men to other people. And, and that can be girls, women, boys, um, feminized men. So that would be in, any man that in some way um, it, it is considered to be less uh, traditionally masculine, so a, a gay man, perhaps, or even men of color who get feminized in these ways. And abuse becomes a way to feminize other men. Uh, and But it's still mostly men that are doing most of the abusing, and the statistics bear that out. So I don't want to minimize that women abuse or the experience of people who've been abused by women. But we also have to recognize it is a gendered phenomenon that happens in very particular ways that are related to male dominance. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting, this feminization of men. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's like a targeted thing because when Asians immigrated a couple hundred years ago and when they came, um, the white dominant society um, gave them these feminized jobs like washing so they had to wash clothes which is often associated with women or they were hired to um, do dishes or to cook so this feminization of asian immigrants mm -hmm. kind of happened right from the time when they set foot and it's targeted you do it so that you can do whatever you want to them you know, you could abuse them either sexually or physically or verbally. Um, so it's interesting. So thank you for leading us down that road. In the book, we talk about the damaged God. I think that might, that and the next topic may be a little bit difficult for people. So can you share with us what we were talking about when we were talking about the damaged God? Well, I, when, when, all of these horrible, harmful images of God are out there. They really damage God 
for people. I mean, so many people have left faith because of abuse and because of the church's response to abuse as well. And so so they've damaged who who God is because folks can't see God in other any other way except someone who was complicit if not an an enabler of their abuse. And so it becomes hard for people to continue to relate to that God. I mean, if, I think I was headed down that road till I found process theology. I mean, that's what kept me uh, Christian was process theology, which is interesting because, of course, that's something in that a lot of, you know, evangelicals would say isn't Christian. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah. yeah. Though I, I was in a class with, with John Cobb and somebody accused him of not being Christian. And I thought he was going to pull a gasket because he was so adamant in his defense of his faith it was wonderful to watch him do that um yeah so i think that that part of what we're trying to do in the book of course is to validate that feeling of yeah no wonder you don't want anything to do with this god anymore this god's damaged beyond use yeah this, this god's not workable but here are some options and to help people think through uh, other ways they can imagine God that might be helpful. And again, not that they have to or necessarily want to, but 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 some people do. Some people want to find a way to stay in their faith. And I think we offer that with the the positive and healing images that we put in the book. Yeah. For your example with John Cobb, I don't know why it's so difficult for Christians to understand this wide breadth of Christianity or this, you know, broad spectrum, that it's not going to be just one way that you view it. But we see this so many times. And then I think that's what makes it so hard for sexual abuse survivors, because the church has viewed it one way and oftentimes blaming um, the abused and, and then making the abuse uh, do retributions and all this other work when it is this powerful person physically or, uh, you know, psycho, you know, the powerful one that has caused the abuse. Yeah. So it's so unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the damage got, and then um, I think the hardest chapter that people may have maybe reading, it may not just, I think it may is uh, when we talk about Jesus, the survivor. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us what that is about. You know, I, I, I look back now and I think, how how had I not thought about that? I mean, that just shows how deep these layers of denial are, right? So when I was doing some of the research for our book, I, I ran across an essay about the likelihood, given what we know about Roman crucifixion, that Jesus would have been sexually assaulted and even raped. And it was like a gut punch. I, I mean, you know, I could I could think of Jesus as having survived sexual abuse simply by being stripped and hung naked on the cross, which was a kind of sexual shaming. But but the other was a gut punch to me. But as I continue to read, it was like, of course, this makes perfectly good sense. Think about what we know even now about prisons, what we know about when guards are given free reign and the kind of sexual abuse that goes on when people are in custody now. And, you know, and the Romans didn't have the same kind of um, legal constraints with with that. I don't think that we, that we do, ineffective though they are. And that was that was difficult. You know, it's, again, you always think, okay, I've thought about everything. There's nothing else that can get to me. And that one, 
that one did. And what I realized was, you know, it didn't make me necessarily feel like, oh, good, Jesus knows what it's like. It, it made me think, I didn't want this. I did not need this for my salvation and redemption. I mean, I didn't need any of it. I didn't need the beating, the crucifixion or anything. I really didn't need that. There was no reason. And again, that goes back to sort of what kind of God would would have demanded that of God's child. And, and it's much more profitable to me to think of God as the one who was suffering with Jesus. And certainly in an incarnational theology, God was suffering in Jesus. Um, and that God did not want it, will it, and God couldn't stop it. But it was a, a result of Jesus's refusal to stop calling out for justice and stop demanding that people act in love, because when you do those things, they have political implications. And that's what the empire knew. Because the empire is the one who executed him. It wasn't Jewish folk. They didn't have the power to do that. It was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire wouldn't have executed somebody over religious things. They didn't care about that. They executed him because they were afraid he was going to start a revolution, a political revolution. And of course they did those things to him. And it's devastating to think about that. But I think it's important that we do. We need to look that in the face because maybe that'll change what we think about other survivors. If we realize how horrific it is to imagine Jesus being sexually assaulted and raped, and maybe it can be a shocking enough metaphor as, as um, Sally McFay talks about to create a little more empathy for survivors. Yeah. And, you know, we don't expect everyone to agree with everything that's in the book, but I think that was an important part um, to include um, because there is just so much about that story, you know, the Holy Week and the crucifixion. And we forget how horrible the Roman Empire was. Mm -hmm. It's not painted so horribly, but we forget that they were horrible and um, the Jewish people were under a lot of oppression at that time. So Yeah, and of course, you, you know, it, to me, it makes sense that the gospel writers wouldn't have wanted to include that. I mean, for a man to be raped was, was shaming. That's what conquering armies did to defeated men. And so how do you have this sort of risen victorious savior if you acknowledge that that happened? And so it doesn't surprise me that we wouldn't see it in the text. That, that, that that was there and they may not have known it for you know a, a fact and that made it easier to 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 leave out so for me that doesn't negate the possibility uh, that <laughs> happened yeah yeah so thank you for sharing that it's really difficult for many of us to kind of think about but i think it's a worthwhile point to ponder on <laughs> and i think it's a very challenging thing you know it you know, the, the Bible is not a autobiography of Jesus or a biography of Jesus. Not everything's included. We don't know what he ate and what time he woke up every day. These mm -hmm. are just um, stories, the gospel stories written by uh, a few men, you know, about 30, 40 years after his crucifixion. So it's not uh, this memory word for word. So we don't know exactly what happened, but the possibility of it. Um, may be helpful for us 
um, survivors, um, you know, the feminization of Jesus that happens. And, you know, as I shared about the feminization of Asian men, immigrants, then you can just do what you want to them. And you don't feel the consequences because you are the man. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I hope people rush to the book to read that section first because <laughs> pretty powerful. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to read it right from the beginning, although, you know, we do share a lot. So, uh, but getting to that, I think will be challenging or maybe people are, are okay with it. Um, after that, we talk about the resurrection of Jesus and that that it is hopeful for survivors. Did you want to um, share a bit about that, the resurrection and the hope that it gives to those who have been abused? Yeah, how I read that part of the story is that it is God's affirmation of Jesus's choice. You know, Jesus chose to go down that road, to go to the cross, to suffer those things. Um, not not to pay a debt to God, but because he would not compromise on his demand for justice. And the resurrection then affirms Jesus made the right choice there. And so I think for survivors, we can imagine our surviving as a kind of resurrection. Um, Carrie Newcomer, who's a, a favorite singer-songwriter of mine has a song. One of the lines is, you know, keep practicing resurrection. And I love that. I love that line. I love, I love so many lines in, in Carrie's stuff. But um, I, I think that there's such hope there that God affirmed the broken, battered, abused Jesus uh, and affirmed his, his choices to, to be that person. And I think that's affirming for us. You know, that God also affirms us in our resurrection as survivors. Yeah. And, you know, I think some people think that there's a magic formula to take the abuse away. In our book, we'd say the resurrection doesn't take our abuse away. Um, I don't know if you want to expand on that part. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier about it. You live with it the rest of your life. I mean, that's sort of the hell of it is that no matter what you do, it's still there and you still uncover layers of it and you see how it has shaped things about you. And, you know, that that's just the reality of, of, again, the world where God doesn't make things happen. So God can't just take it away. Um, you know, again, God is at work as persuasive love calling us to to make of it everything we can to to not to let it defeat us and to find ways through it but yeah god god can't take away you know therapists can't take it away I, I, you know reading the bible can't take it away uh those things can help us uh but but i think part of healing from from abuse is coming to terms with the fact that it is a lifelong journey through no fault of our own through nothing we could have done, no prayer we can say, no offering we can make, we are in this existential situation where the rest of our lives, this will be part of it. But we don't have to despair in that because we we have survived it and we can make something of that. And again, not that God sent it our way so we would learn to do that, but that we choose, having had this awful thing happen to us, we choose to do something that is good and loving and just 
Now, that said, none of that has to be toward the perpetrator. Other people have to deal with the perpetrator, not our responsibility. I think the church is responsible for perpetrators, but we are not responsible for the health and healing and spirituality of our, our perpetrators. Uh, and so I think that's another place the church has a lot of work to do. It's, you know, what do we do with perpetrators? But there are a lot of them. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for expanding on that. That's so helpful. And, you know, we're hoping that um, survivors will use this book, read it, and, you know, it's not going to take their abuse away, but it will help them along the journey towards healing. That's always my hope. And we do talk about surviving with Jesus gives us hope, uh, you know, of a different kind of a world that's possible. Um, any other thoughts on hope and what Jesus as survivor? Yeah, well, there, there's just something in that. What you two, I thought I was the only one that is helpful and healing. And so it's not just that Jesus is also one of us, but that there's this whole world full of us, which is sad in one way, but also in another, it means we're not alone. It means we're not the only one who's gone through this. We're not the only ones uh, to to suffer. And feeling part of a community is is healing as well. And so I think that it's important that that in our telling our stories, we invite people to um, connect with us as as part of a community of survivors. And I think that's what part of what we see in the Jesus narrative as well is is we can connect with Jesus as part of a community of survivors. Yeah. And so most books for me, uh, you know, when I want to read and what I want to write, always I want to end on a good note, a happy note. And so we did that with this book. And I'm really glad that we did because we ended the book with joy. And, you know, joy is a, such a big thing, but you shared a lot of joy in the book too. So uh, why don't you share that joy with us? Yeah, well, it, it's so funny because you may remember we were writing the book and it was kind of a downer. <laughs> it was. You and I are both such joyous people. And I remember we were thinking, okay, we can't do this. <laughs> well, what, what is it? What is it that is on the other side? And, and I think for us both, it's joy. And joy is not, again, we don't feel it. It's gone. Never have to deal with it again. Joy is our ability to be fully present in our own lives and to be aware and attentive at every moment of, of the good that's there. It's also a both and though, is that in being aware and attentive of the good, we also are cognizant of the bad. So we're not pretending bad stuff's not happening and that bad stuff hasn't had an effect on us, but we're able to center the joy and to recognize that we can find it. And so we go to look for it and we we attune ourselves to the the, the you know, what is it? Mary Oliver calls it one wild life, I think, that we have. And uh, and for each of us, that kind of joy looks different. I mean, for me, it's, <laughs> you know, it's the outdoors in Oregon or it's ABBA <laughs> or it's, you know. I remember you telling me. <laughs> you know, murder mysteries or <laughs> yeah, teaching actually is, is a joy to me. I mean, what, what, are, you, what are your things? What, what brings you joy? I can't remember what I wrote exactly in the book, but there's a lot of joy, uh, things that give me joy, talking with friends with like you, sharing a meal. Um, well, 
you know, as I age and as I get older, the more desire to uh, eat Korean food has become very evident. And once I see it, it brings me so much joy. It's like this out of world experience. So that I don't think I included in the book. Yeah, chocolate does that for me. (laughs) What was that? Chocolate, chocolate does that. Well, chocolate does that right chocolate. Too. Yeah, but I have to have chocolate in small doses because when you oh. OD, it's like, but I can OD on Korean food. And right. <laughs> okay, okay. I think your children bring you a lot of joy too. Yeah, but... uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Especially now that they're out of the teen years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they give me a lot of joy. And I'm always like, can't wait to be a grandmother one day. So there's oh, a gosh. lot of joy. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I know they're, they're tired of me saying, I've been saying it over a year now, but uh, yeah, not that any of them are getting married or anything, but I'm just saying, you know, in general, I can't wait to be a grandmother. I have friends my age that are going to be grandmothers. So I just feel like I'm not that, yeah, I'm not that young to be a grandmother. There's a lot of joy that can come. And I think, you know, it was a struggle to write this. But, you know, there was joy in the writing, too, especially with you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I love about writing together is just sort of sharing the journey and the laughter. And, and of course, you know, people may not know that you and I always try to get together in person at least uh-huh. once, you know. And so, again, yeah. you know, there's lots of food and laughter and um planning and just enjoying each other's company that's part of this so that that makes it a really special journey uh, when we write our books together yeah likewise it is very special and it's something that doesn't just come you know and I know other people search for co-authors and it's not that easy so but it's been a joy to write with you Susan and I learned so much from you you're so intelligent so smart so I'm like ditto, oh. ditto. <laughs> like, how come I didn't know this <laughs> all the time I know. I have that, especially when you you come up with these concepts that you bring from Korean tradition that just blow my mind. And I'm always like, oh, that's the perfect thing. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> well, that's so good. Because, you know, when I do my talks, I always share about how horrible my experience going to Korean school was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I really hated it. My parents had to take me and my sister kicking and screaming. I think it was a Saturday morning. It was like uh-huh. 9 to 12 every week. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. But And then I said, oh, I'll never do that to my kids. And then I ended up taking all three Friday nights uh, kicking and uh-huh. screaming. They were literally holding onto the car door, but they're not going to get out. And I had to yank them out. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But now looking back, you know, I'm so glad I did go kicking and screaming. And I hope my kids will appreciate me taking them too, because mm-hmm. there's so much richness in every culture. Because oh, yeah. I'm not being so ashamed of my Koreanness. But um, there's so much richness. And I think that will go for anybody. Um, but whatever identity you find yourself, your sexual identity, your religious identity, your um Uh, ethnic identity I think there's so much richness and we should not be ashamed of how we have been created because we're all so beautiful and whether we have been abused or not that um, God has survived Jesus has survived and we survived together too and in this community and I'm so grateful that you reached out in social media to get a lot of the 
um, stories of the survivors. You did away more than me uh, on getting these um, stories. So it's been so helpful. Um, yeah, I love the stories that other people shared with us. And I so appreciate their vulnerability to do it. Because again, doing this as an intersectional piece that was necessary to have these other amazing images from other people's experiences. And I think it makes the book so much richer to have their voices there. Yeah. So thank you, Susan, so much. Uh, I know you're so busy, but thank you so much for uh, for not surviving me, but uh, <laughs> for spending time with me to share Surviving God. I hope many people, and I, you know, when we wrote it, we hope that many churches, many classrooms, you know, many book clubs can come together and read it together. So we're really hoping for that. So thank you so much, Susan. I know you're extremely busy. So, but thank you so much for coming on Madame podcast to share Surviving God. Yeah, thanks for having me here again. I appreciate it. And pretty soon it'll be time to get to, to work on our next book. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the name of that book, but it's uh, uh, feminist theology the basics <laughs> i don't know why i had beliefs that's some other book series <laughs> i get everything mixed up but anyway yeah we have to get cracking on that one now that this is done yeah <laughs> well, thanks a lot grace yeah thank you for sharing joy today thank you bye-bye uh, with deep roots in the christian tradition and open to engaging dialogue William B. Ehrman's publishing company is committed to the life of the religious academy, to the church, and to the role of religion and culture. With a history spanning over 100 years, Ehrman publishes the finest literature in theology, biblical studies, and religious history, and popular titles in spirituality, ministry, and cultural criticism. In addition to David Gushy, authors publishing with Ehrman's include Padraig Otama, Amy Peeler, Matthew Bates, David Hummel, Janet Kellogg-Ray, and more. Popular themes throughout the 2024 book season include titles on evangelicalism and politics, faith deconstruction, and a supply of captivating literary nonfiction selections. Visit the all-new www.erdmans.com to order your books today. While you're there on the website, remember to sign up for our monthly newsletter called The Logo to stay in the know regarding upcoming releases, author events, and all things Erdman's. Broadleaf Books is excited to announce the publication of Grace G. Sun Kim and Susan M. Shaw's new book, Surviving God a new vision of God through the eyes of sexual abuse survivors. This one-of-a-kind book centers the voice of sexual abuse survivors while rethinking key Christian beliefs. Readers will discover new ways of thinking about God that are surprising, challenging, inspiring, and empowering, leading to deep healing for individuals and a transformed church that no longer contributes to the devastation of sexual abuse. Please use discount code SURVIVINGGOD30 till April 30th to get 30% off the price list from Broadleaf website. For this book and to discover more new and exciting titles focusing on spirituality and religion, visit www.broadleafbooks.com. Please attend Penn Autumn's 38th conference, which will be held virtually March 7th to 9th. 
This year's theme is Where Streams Join, Re-Signifying Complexity, Mutuality, and Healing. The conference will begin with a plenary session, Intergenerational Trauma, on March 7th, 8 to 9.30 Eastern Time, which is free and open to the public. Please visit www.panawtm.org for more information on this conference and other events or to donate. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.